Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have this place to talk about faith and politics and canceling and just all kinds of big ideas or canceling big ideas. You'll see what I'm talking about in a second. It's uh, it's really cool. We get to have these just incredible people, smart people. They, they come in good faith and goodwill, and I am thrilled to get to talk, have these conversations. It is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And listen, I need a favor. (laughs) This would be really helpful and meaningful to me, to the show and what we're trying to do here. Go to Apple Podcast, find our page there for talking politics and religion without killing each other. Scroll down a few episodes to where they have the reviews and rate us, uh, hopefully five stars, and then click on the option that lets you write a review. Here's why I'm asking. Apple, for better or worse, is the most dominant player in podcasts, and they, they won't give the likes of me the time of day. And that affects our discoverability on their app. Despite that, this show is in the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the entire world across all genres. But if we get enough reviews, that will actually increase our visibility on Apple. It will push us into the top 1% and then more people can participate in the conversations just like the one we're having today with Greg Lukyanov. Greg Lukyanov is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, aka FIRE, and one of the country's most passionate defenders of free expression. He's an accomplished author of several books, including Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, The Coddling of the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt, and his most recent book, The Canceling of the American Mind with Ricky Schlott. He has also written on free speech issues for such outlets as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and was the executive producer of documentaries Can We Take a Joke and Mighty Ira, which I just watched last night. I, I really enjoyed it, especially the fact that Ira is a uh, is a, a Mets fan. So, you know, you had me at let's go Mets. <laughs> um, was a Dodger, Brooklyn Dodger fan before that. Uh, but uh, Greg also earned his undergrad degree from American University and his law degree from Stanford, and yet still has a ton of street cred on Block Island from what I hear. So, <laughs> Greg Lukianov, thanks for joining me. How you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I am doing great. I am doing great. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. I have so many questions. I've been basting in a lot of your material written and now the documentary. I got to go back and uh, fair, just full disclosure. I got to watch the the first one, the first uh, uh, film. But I was curious, are, is the next film going to be some kind of mashup between, you know, cancel culture and Last of Us? Are you going to get into fiction? Like what, what what's next on the uh, on the film front? <laughs> uh, the next on the film front is actually there is a documentary of, of coddling the American mind coming out very soon. I, I, I'm actually forbidden 
from giving you too many details about precisely what that's going to look like because uh, it's a big surprise. Okay. Um, but uh, and and what's interesting about it is that uh, the documentary from Coddling the American Mind is focused much more squarely on the mental health costs of of the uh, bad mental habits we talk about in the book, um, which is very dear to my heart. Um, so yeah, that, that'll be. Uh, I think they're going to be announcing that in about a month. Wow. So you kind of open the door to potentially a sensitive topic right out of the gate. I was curious, given your uh, your own experiences, uh, at, at one point you generously uh, shared a mental health crisis that you went through. Um, I, I was curious if, if that experience and perhaps your ongoing uh, vigilance uh, in, in dealing with your mental health has made you in some ways more sympathetic to what you see going on on college campuses or less sympathetic, like rub some dirt in it, get over it. I've gotten over it. Like where, where, how has it affected how you see what's been happening on that on college campuses? Well, you know, it always, the questions always rely on what audience you mean. Um, so just as, so your listeners know, um, uh, in coddling the American mind, my, my, my previous book with Jonathan Haidt, um, I talk about being hospitalized as a danger to myself in 2007. And I actually give more detail about what happened to me than anybody, literally anybody had ever heard before. I, I, I my wife didn't know a lot of those details. My family didn't know a lot of those details. Um, and one thing that I stress a little bit more in canceling of the American mind, my most recent book with, with um, Ricky, is that that was to, to a disproportionate degree because of the culture war, because being stuck in the culture war was so alienating, so exhausting, and friends would turn on you um, and right and left would be mad at you, depending on the cases and really hate your guts if you were defending ones that offended either, you know, either their of their uh, preferred sides. Um, you know, I got very depressed, but as I was, um, recovering, I started learning cognitive behavioral therapy. That's all about developing better mental habits about how to talk to the, uh, anxious and depressed voices in your own head. Um, and as I got better at that, I started seeing in, in, on campus, uh, like what I thought was adults modeling some of the anxious and depressed habits that I was being taught to fight myself. But at the time, 2008, uh, by the time I was recovering, um, students weren't buying it. They, they, mm. they, were, they were like, okay, yeah, you're telling me to catastrophize, go to hell. You know, like, like I don't care. Um, and, but around 2013, 2014, we, we, we started seeing students showing up on campus already uh, catastrophizing, engaging in binary thinking, all of these uh, overgeneralizing, all of these bad mental habits that will make you anxious and depressed. So we made the point, um, at, at, and we began working on this article in 2014, that the same habits that were going to be a threat to academic freedom and free speech on campus were actually going to be a threat to uh, threat to mental health. So my sympathy, you know, how this affects my ongoing thinking of the situation on campus, the students have my sympathy. Um, mm. it, it, uh, and I know that they're struggling. Who doesn't have my th sympathy? are the administrators and the teachers who are teaching these mental habits because coddling the American mind has been a book that's gotten in front of, you know, almost three quarters of a million people. Like, like it's been an influential book. I'm blown away by how many people we've been, we've been able to reach. However, I don't, I feel like people are still missing its primary message. 
Um, I think there are people who've read it and said, oh, there's a mental health crisis. Everyone needs more therapy. It's like, no, 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 that's actually not what we're saying. We're we're, we're saying that you're whispering into a, 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 a generation of young people's ears that they can't handle their own lives and they're believing you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's you, you bring to mind two conversations I had, both of them in July, one at the beginning of July of 2023 and one at the end of July. The first conversation was with uh, Todd Rose, whose work you might be familiar with. Big fan um, of Todd Rose. He's a, yeah, great, he's a great guy. Yeah, it was a great conversation. And, and it really opened my eyes to what we're experiencing on a primal human level when we're being canceled. Uh, it's something that that um, we experience it physically uh, because there's something instinctive about our um, survival that when we're being ostracized at such a, a mass scale that we feel it palpably, uh, we experience yeah. it physically even. And yes, there are those um, distortions that we go through, the, the mischaracterizing, the catastrophizing, the things that you go through in, in the book and then reha- uh, in the coddling and then um, recount again in, uh, in canceling the two books. Um, but uh, the, other, the other conversation I had, and I found this, it, I might be oversimplifying here, but uh, Dr. Russell Moore, toward the end of, of um, I always end up getting into other topics other than his latest book. One topic that we got into was how we were raising our kids. Yeah. Uh, a couple of his kids are around the same age as my kids. My, I have kids between the age of 18 and 22 now. Um, oh, okay. And he was talking about, you know, I, allowing, keeping your kids close enough and then slowly um, opening up those boundaries to them so that you can help them go through manageable crises, right? Yeah. So every every crisis in their mind, sometimes the, the stakes are, are higher than others, but you help them think it through or you help them go through the steps of managing it. So it was yeah. a very helpful tool for me. Um, but I, I want to back up for a second. So, sorry to uh, editorialize here a little bit, but you, you, you already have me think. I knew this would happen. Um, I want to back <laughs> up a little bit. I've sure. heard you mention that your grandfather fought the Bolsheviks and mm-hmm. your father fought the Nazis while at the same time was being hunted by the so or would have been killed if he got caught by the Soviets. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your family story? Well, you know, um, my dad, my granddad, my granddad did fight the Bolsheviks. Um, my uh, my father was part of an underground group called um, like NTS or something like that that opposed actually both the Nazis and, and, and the Soviets. Um, the most dangerous thing he did was actually get kicked out of his Russian military school in the 1940s for being anti-Nazi. My mom you know, who is from England kind of interpreted that as like, oh, you got kicked out of school, big deal. And it's like, no, we, she got kicked out of school during the Nazi occupation of Yugoslavia for being anti-Nazi. Like that, wow. that, like, and the way it was explained to him is I have the lives of 120 little boys to think of. Um, because yeah, like they, they, like if they thought there was any risk that this Russian military school might suddenly become pro-Soviet, they would have killed all of them. Wow. Um, so I don't want to romanticize it too much, but the um, but my yeah my grandfather uh, fought the uh, fought the Bolsheviks, and of course you know, sometimes in New York you'll run into people who are kind of like oh you're aristocracy I'm like no we were <laughs> several generations separated from serfdom, but we were we were, had been making good. We, my uh, my grandfather was studying at Kiev Polytechnic um, to become a professor, um, and my my, my great grandfather 
was a judge. Um, so we were uh, we were kind of a success story of of serfs who made good, um, and that was interpreted as a um, uh, in any other society that would have been considered oh that's a great thing. But under the Bolsheviks, we were shot back in the head, um, you know, uh, in huge numbers. That's um that's so interesting as you describe it. I I when I heard the headline of of your background, your family's background, I immediately assumed that you were Jewish, like my family. In fact, we're probably mm-hmm. our families are probably from a similar part of what then was the uh, the Russian Empire. Yep. Pale uh, of settlement. Yeah, Ukraine. The the we were in the Pale of Settlement. We were in what's called um, uh, uh, Chernyostrov, Ukraine. Um, yep. Similar story. Our family had we can deduce that they had been there for about 800 to 1,000 years. Uh, yeah. and, and similarly, we one of my great uncles was the mayor of that town. Uh, there were there were um, restaurateurs, not restaurateurs, but like they, they owned a bar and served food. Uh, one was a rabbi. Um, but that generation, that particular generation that was born anywhere between 1890 and 1900, very interesting because my uncles, uh, they they were they were considering the early Bolshevik movement. Oh, there's is there something to this? And then found themselves to be the enemies of the Bolsheviks. Uh, one of the uncles was recruited by the Tsar's army uh, to fight in the first part of World War One. Um, you know, and then obviously the Cossacks just uh, you know they came in and burned and pillaged <laughs> at random. Well, not really at random, but um, but I assumed that you were uh, part of a Jew. But it's uh this this descendant of serfs you say yeah yeah um so not jewish um apparently uh in the same haplogroup genetically as a, as a lot of ashkenazi but it's it's a regional thing but yeah unsurprisingly people marry each other right um and, or, and have kids with each other um but no uh, not jewish but but I, I always take it as a compliment when people um assume i'm jewish uh you know and I, I point out, I'm like Jewish. Like I, I grew up in the New York area uh, among a lot of other uh, 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 Russian Orthodox and, and Jewish kids. So yeah, yeah. I, I, it made all the more intense. But by when I got to Stanford, by the fact that I was constantly demanding better kosher food, um, <laughs> <laughs> like no, I just want better food. A decent <laughs> bagel. Your, your bagels are terrible. I mean, they. they, they I, I mean, here, here's here, here's a great sin. Um, when I got to uh, – uh, there was a place called Izzy's Brooklyn Bagels in Palo Alto that was one of the only places that had even halfway decent bagels. <laughs> they had chocolate chip bagels. No. And I was like, how am I – no, that's wrong. That's immoral. <laughs> and this kind of adamance about this and this and good matzo ball soup. You know? That's right. Got that's people right. to assume things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you – I'm assuming that your grandfather passed away before you were born. Is that right? But, uh, my, my, but check check this out. My grandfather died. My grandfather died in 1932. Oh, holy cow! So your yeah. f- father must have been p- pretty relatively Six. older by the time he got got that you were born. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my dad was 49, um, and I just turned 49. So it's amazing to have lived this much of my life and realize that I'm only now as old as my dad was when I was born. Wow. So, but, but yeah, so my, my dad's dad died when he was, uh, uh, when he was six. Okay. And my babushka, um, who, who was still alive when I, when I was a kid, um, could only afford to support one of the kids. And so she kept, uh, Alexander, Sasha, and she gave the other two kids away. 
And oh. so my dad was an orphan um, in Yugoslavia in the 30s. Um, and so like his entire childhood was just nightmarish. Um, that being said, uh, it does help you slap yourself in the face sometimes when you're whining about your own life to be kind of like, well, you know, at least I don't have rickets and, uh, you know, not, at least I'm not an orphan in Yugoslavia. Yeah, a lot. So <laughs> I was going to ask you how you learned your family's stories. Uh, I, I learned mine uh, by the time I, I started driving. I, I would drive into Brooklyn. My grandparents were still alive. My mother was from Russia or Ukraine, as as we said. Uh, my grandfather grew up in Brooklyn, the the, the other old country. <laughs> um, but I would spend entire days with my grandparents, my Baba and Zeta, and they would tell me the stories. My grandfather telling me more of what what Brooklyn was like in the early 1900s. And my grandmother um, having very vivid uh, memories of what it was like in Ukraine and a trip across the states. How did you learn your family's stories? Um, you know, my parents were di- uh, got divorced when I was pretty young, um, so I, you know, but my dad is still alive, by the way. He's ninety-seven. Um, he uh, t- is a talker, so I just have them talked at me um, for long, long periods of time. But my babushka was had was recovering from a stroke, you know, uh, or not really recovering. She was, you know, laid out with a stroke, so she never explained anything to me. She forgot that she could speak English, so she only oh. spoke Russian. Really, just stories from my dad. Um, the it, it's kind of interesting, particularly with the Ukraine war now. My my, my babushka uh, was from Kostroma, um, which is on the Volga River bend, and my dad always grew up thinking of himself as Russian. But given that my grandfather was from a place called Rilsk, right on the Ukrainian border, and grew up primarily in and around Kiev, I wonder what he would think of himself as these days. Because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, unsurprisingly, as a civil libertarian, I'm very much on the side of the Ukrainians versus Putin, who's one of my least favorite people on the entire planet. Um, but I also wonder if, if, you know, my grandfather would have thought of himself as Ukrainian. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we're we're always Jewish, so it's you know whether we're in America, whether we're in Ukraine, or whether you know even you know I have family in Israel. Uh, is there, there's an old joke about that, though. There was a great show called Bur- Brooklyn Bridge. It's kind of like we're over there, we're Jews. We come here, we're Russians. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important: money, <laughs> uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Meza. George runs Meza Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me. He knows my family. And I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals, and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com. 
www.mazawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. I was curious about something else uh, about growing up. You, you, you described uh, sneaking off to the library. You know, you, know you, you played football, you tried to be a tough guy. Uh, but sneaking off to the to the uh, library. Unfortunately, all, I kind of was a tough guy. Um, but but, but uh, there's aspects of that I'm not so proud of anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to I do want to learn more about um, how you went from. I think it was uh, most likely to be absent to yep. Stanford Law. <laughs> but but I was curious <laughs> what what kind of stuff were you reading as a kid when you snuck off to the library? You know, I was a sucker um, for newsreels. Um, I would get the old New York Times and I would just go and read present, um, you know, reporting uh, of big things, you know, mm-hmm. whether, whether all through World War II, World War One, the 1920s, 1930s, you know, some of the, you know, I, sometimes you're interested in the grisly stuff. So also I was interested in things like Jonestown, I'm sure. Um, but it was so awesome to be able to actually flip through those things and see even just the advertising, just the fence of like a different era. Yeah. And so I always, I always just kind of assumed when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to, uh, do something practical, you know, um, in the, in the middle part, but I'm going to retire as a history teacher. That's a, and I want to be a high school history teacher, by the way, uh, cause I love history. Like, and, I, um, and that's what, a lot of what I was going to the library was just to read, read up on history. Cause it was, and, and then the thing is I didn't want people to know I went to the high, uh, went, went to the library on, on, on Sundays. Um, and that, that was one of my, you know, that was kind of my happy place. Um, cause you know, I didn't want them to know that, uh, when I got into high school that I, that when I started getting good grades, which was, which, um, I didn't initially get because, you know, I thought I didn't, this is something that people don't get about the class dynamics sometimes. Like the, it, it wasn't, it, there, there was a sense that you're, it's like almost shameful, like, like, like to, to, to be a go-getter, like at least to, to be someone who actually has great grades and all this kind of stuff. And even though I could get good grades or great, or when I started when I put myself to it, it was easy. Um, the, uh, uh, but there was, I wasn't supposed to, you know, like, and, and that essentially like I would hide that part of myself a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm remembering that now as a kid that uh, if you excelled, in school, there was a certain label that was applied to you and that you couldn't, um, there was a sense that you couldn't necessarily hang as much with the tough kids. You know, we were, uh, yeah. we were, we started in New York and we ended up in, in central Jersey. Uh, and there was definitely that, um, I don't know, there was a split, uh, split persona in a way that we, we still wanted to hang out with the tough kids whose families were from New York. And yet we had this, um, pressure to to excel academically and uh we had to we had to figure out a way to navigate in both both worlds you know yeah well that, that, that's one that thing, thing that i find interesting about code switching the way it's talked about today um code and i've had code switching explained to me as if you know someone like me would never understand what that means and it's kind of like no i mean like being for different class backgrounds i mean my mom is british and my dad is russian like Within Europe, you're not going to find two less similar cultures than 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 British and Russian. Yeah, my mom, you know, had an exaggerated sense. Okay, so my mom's ethnically Irish, grew up in Britain, and thinks of herself as British. My dad, my my dad is ethnically Russian, grew up in Yugoslavia, and thinks of himself as Russian. 
but because my mom was a you know a little Irish girl, she, she, like a lot of immigrants, she had a, a kind of an exaggerated sense of being British. Um, so like I grew up with a very strong idea of needing to be polite, but on the Russian side, there's a very strong Russian value in brutal honesty. It, yeah. You know, and, and those two don't always go together so well. Yeah. So a, a lot of these, a lot of the questions that that I was curious about is around when you started becoming aware of of concepts like the freedom of speech, freedom of expression, you know, those freedoms that are outlined, especially in the First Amendment, but throughout the Bill of Rights. When did you start becoming aware of those and and what began to form your understanding and your own views of those freedoms? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the nice things about, you know, growing up in in a, a, a community with a lot of other first generation and immigrant kids. You know, because growing up in the 80s, you know, a lot of the other kids were from Vietnam, they're from Korea, they're from authoritarian, you know, parts of South America, they're from China. And a lot of them were fleeing, you know, uh, either communism or totalitarianism uh, or uh, authoritarianism of some kind. So all of us got free speech, like, like, and none of us took it for granted because the, that's what our parents were running away from, you know, like the, uh, so, uh, and that also made us in some ways kind of solidly eighties kids like yeah. that, um, uh, that free speech by the eighties was starting to become not quite, but starting to become sort of a consensus opinion. Um, it, uh, definitely had been championed by the left for a long time, but on the right, uh, the, the country seemed to come together with a strong sense of freedom of speech, which is one of the things that made America different. So from day one, you know, I, I was big on free speech. Uh, the thing that really got me more radicalized in that direction was going to college and being a student journalist. And then you see like how uh, people come into your office. By the time I was an editor, uh, people will come into your office and demand that you you know punish this guy or, or apologize for that story or retract this thing. Um, because they, you know, they're offended by, they didn't like the story. Um, but they hadn't figured out the rationale yet and, and watching someone be like, you got to punish this columnist and then being like, why? And then realizing they didn't know yet. Yeah. (laughs) They, they just knew that it bugged them and there has to be a rationale and they would very quickly figure out, oh, this rationale will probably be the most effective. This is like the most, like the most likely thing that will convince them to, um, and at the, I can't remember what the primary arguments were at the time. Um, the, I mean, certainly saying it was offensive what, what, what was pretty common already by the mid 90s. Um, but when you realize that there's such a human instinct to censor, yeah, you realize that uh, free speech protections have to be very broad. Now, there are also other things that contributed to it. Living in Eastern Europe for a while, which um, you know, I, I actually lived in Prague instead of Russia. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always. It never seems like the right time to go. And now with Putin there, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, the when it comes to um, uh, you know, I did refugee law in Eastern Europe as well. Um, and then there was a passage of the Communications Decency Act in 19, uh, uh, 1996, which was this attempt to ban indecency on the internet. Yeah, which is laughably unconstitutional. You don't need like you, like it's just way too vague, way too broad. And so by the time I was deciding to go to law school, I really was like, I'm going to law school to do First Amendment. I'm I'm going to law school to do free speech. Um, and that's what I specialize at Stanford. I took every class that it offered in First Amendment. Um, I interned at the ACLU of Northern California. 
And when I ran out of classes, um, I did uh, six credits of my own creation on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, which, by the way, comes up a lot in Canceling of the American Mind, because so many of the parallels of the attempts to ban the printing press, how much relevance they have for our, our current disruptive technology, social media, um, the, the parallels are all over the place. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I really appreciated listening to a bunch of your other interviews um, and reading some of your stuff that y- you could be talking about like Henry VIII and, and con- to contextualize freedom of speech. You know, a lot of times, obviously, you go back to Locke and some of the Enlightenment thinkers, but uh, it, you you're, you go way back. You go back to Socratic, yeah. you know, times. And so I, I love the historical, uh, the history of philosophy, how it contextualizes your thinking. Um you know, to, to help understand the issues, I, I thought that Mighty Ira was a really a good Thank you. film for, for a lot of reasons. It was just it was it was a fun watch uh, just on its own merits as a as a documentary, as a film. But it also instigated a lot of thought. Uh, so I, I was first of all, it, can you describe um Mighty Mighty Ira is about Ira Glasser, uh, who was the longtime exec director of the ACLU, um, if I remember correctly. And much of the film deals with the ACLU's decision to defend Nazis, the, the Nazis' right to assemble and the freedom of speech in Chicago and ultimately to march in Skokie, Illinois, which led to uh, a major Supreme Court case in the late 70s. So I was hoping that you could uh, describe some of the details of the case and the significance of that case. Yeah, so that was that, that was something that made an impression on me and a lot of young liberals, you know, back back in the back in the eighties, was the fact that there was an organization out there so principled that even Jewish lawyers would be willing to go into court to defend the free speech rights of people who were their gravest enemies, Nazis, um, and that kind of principle really made made an impression on a lot of us. That that essentially it's like. Wow, you really mean it. Like, like you're you you understand that when you create exceptions to free speech, that ends up working against the most oppressed in your society, even if that means sometimes you have to defend uh, people who are vile. But it also it showed something very pragmatic about it too, um, about freedom of speech. What destroyed the American Nazi movement in the United States in the late seventies, early eighties? It was being made fun of and making themselves look ridiculous. Now, of course, there were neo-Nazis who who came later. Um, But when you look at the moment when the Illinois Nazis were putting themselves together, nothing made themselves more ridiculous than actually seeing them protesting. And we we actually show a fair amount of footage from the actual protests in Mighty Ira. And they look absolutely ridiculous. And of course they do, uh, because they're idiots. Um, and, and, you know, of course, being, you know, growing up, then being a joke and Blues Brothers, uh, mockery actually did a lot more to uh, to put that put them in their place than anything else. And also, when you look at other moments in history, when you repress someone and this happened to the real Nazis in Weimar, by the way, is that the various attempts to uh, censor them, to send them to jail for saying anti-Semitic things, which is a lot of something that a lot of people don't know. Uh, there's this idiotic thing that that that, that comes from um, uh, advocates of speech codes. That it's like, oh, um, if there had been hate speech codes in Weimar, that would have stopped the rise of the Nazis. And it's kind of like it's a ridiculous argument. 
from the get-go because it's kind of like, yes, and then those would have been enforced by people who were voted in by a population that more than a third of them voted for Nazis. So so like it, it, it doesn't make sense even on the basics. But what they completely did not know and clearly did not is that there were laws that allowed you to punish anti-Semitic speech and Nazis actually went to jail for saying anti-Semitic things. And of course, when this happened, um, anytime that they tried to uh, censor Hitler, for example, say that he couldn't give speeches on, on college campuses, they turned this into a PR victory for the Nazis, basically saying, what does this man have to say that's so amazing that, that, that he's not even allowed to speak on, 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 on campus? Or, or when uh, I think it was Stryker, like who got out of uh, jail in the 1920s, um, when they when he got out, they turned it into a, into a rally, basically saying like, oh, you, you know, they, they, they tried to silence us. So a lot of times motions to silence backfire. Meanwhile, letting the idiots talk um, sometimes can really defuse it. And of course, the real lesson of what should have happened in Weimar Germany is that they had way, way too much tolerance for right wing violence. Um, and if they had gone after um, uh, Hitler, you know, for example, I don't know, trying to overthrow the government in 1923, killing a police officer in the process of it, um, instead of sending to, to, to jail for a, a, a slap on the wrist, you know, in a lot of other societies, he would have been hung. And I and although I'm not generally in favor of capital punishment, I do believe that the world would be a better place if they had just hung Hitler in 1924. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that brings up a, an interesting question. Where is the line where it's no longer about assembly and speech? Do you certainly... Yeah freedoms have limitations? And if so, what would be an uh, example? Where is that line? Sure. So here's the big thing. And uh, Europeans tend to think that our American First Amendment is crazy. Um, and whenever I go over there, I'm always explaining about how actually I think they're doing it wrong, oh. which is a very, which is a very rude uh, 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 thing, but but I do actually believe they are. But also, Wait, our but laws do, not- do you do you speak uh, to you know the French and Italian? Do you speak louder and slower English to make sure they understand you better? No, I'm just I'm totally kidding. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of times when I go over that, cause, cause, and, I, and I say like I say this because uh, American constitutional lawyers, for the most part, particularly those of us educated at fancy schools, we're supposed to go over there and go, "Oh, we're fools over here in the U.S., and you guys have it all right." Like like it seems to be like the politeness norm that we're supposed to follow, and of course. Um, some constitutional lawyers actually believe that. Yeah. I don't. Um, I, I, I don't think since both my parents are European and I lived over there a lot, I don't think of it as some magical utopia over there. I think they got a ton of things wrong. Um, and when I come over and explain, you know, the American First Amendment, um, one, I explain the primary difference between your system and our system is we have something called the bedrock principle. It was established in a case called uh, um, Texas v. Johnson in 1989, a case about whether or not you're allowed to burn an American flag, something that a lot of Americans find deeply offensive. And that bedrock principle is you cannot ban things in our country simply because they're offensive. And to me, this is also a bedrock idea for a genuinely, genuinely multicultural, um, diverse society. Because think about I think about the neighborhood I grew up in. You know, my 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 my, uh, my kid, my friends who had Vietnamese parents had very different ideas about what was, was offensive. My friends with Korean parents, same thing. My my Peruvian friends, my my uh, friends from Brazil and Portugal, they all had different ideas of what was offensive and what should be banned. 
um, my mom, my mom, and my dad had very different ideas of what shouldn't be uh, what what shouldn't be allowed. Um, so, if you do have a genuinely diverse society, then saying, "Listen, offense is too subjective. Um, it, it's too different from person to person, from era to era, from culture to culture. That can't be the basis of it." So, instead, we have um, a narrow categories of exceptions to the First Amendment um, as a way to try to constrain uh, their abuse. Um, and so some of the exceptions to the First Amendment, which are entirely appropriate, by the way, you know, number one is true threats, um, saying that you're going to kill someone or otherwise, uh, you know, talking in a way that indicates that they're in serious, that, that a reasonable person would believe that they were in imminent harm of bodily harm or death is not protected, nor should it be. Um, I actually think that on social media, we made a mistake not actually going after people who issued death threats. Um, as effectively, because I think this led a lot of people to believe, oh, I guess death threats are protected speech. And that seems ridiculous. And it's like, well, no, they're not, nor should they be. And nobody should be threatening your, uh, threatening your lives. Um, of course, incitement to imminent loss, action is not protected. Um, that's actually a very tough standard, comes out of a case called Brandenburg from, from 1969. Um, and that's that, uh, that uh, if, if you're saying, you know, let's burn down the mayor's office, uh, you know, in front of the mayor's office with an angry crowd with torches, then yeah, you know, like that could be incitement. It's also a conspiracy to burn down the uh, mayor's office, by the way. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the incitement standard gets very close to the sort of conspiracy standard and aiding and abetting and all these other things. But discriminatory harassment um, is not protected on campus, for example. Um, it's just not considered an exception to freedom of speech because it's considered a pattern of behavior that's not just about the offensiveness of words. It's about, um, you know, uh, it, it's about severe, persistent and pervasive behavior, pattern of behavior fear that discriminates against an individual on the basis of race or religion, uh, for, uh, for example. So I actually think that the American First Amendment, um, the exceptions that it have make a great deal of sense. Um, and that's one of the reasons why when people, you know, are like, oh, these ridiculous free speech absolutists. I'm like, um, yes, there are people out there who think they're free speech absolutists. You're not going to find a constitutional lawyer who thinks that they are. So just to make sure, um, just to make sure that we piss off everyone. <laughs> um, that's what I do for a living. Yeah. Uh, so uh, two of the categories that you described that were not necessarily protected is incitement to violence uh, and yep. discriminatory harassment. So yeah. would you describe not just uh, Trump's speech on January 6, 2021, but in context of all the actions between the election of 2020 and January 6th as incitement, number one, and then yeah. to make sure that we're all inclusive of pissing off everyone, would you yeah. say that since October 7th of 2023, that there is an emerging pattern of discriminatory harassment against uh, Jews, uh, especially on campuses in America. That, that's a, that's a very effective way to piss everybody off. Um, so when it comes to the current question about whether or not the, the the question as presented to the court is whether or not um, Trump's January 6th speech by itself constituted the incitement standard, because that's that's the only reason why you would need. Um, uh, that's the only reason why you would need to go directly just at the speech is to make the argument that there's that it fits within an exception to freedom of speech. And by the very tough standards of Brandenburg, and, so, and, and there are First Amendment lawyers who think that by this standard, it's it's too hard 
um, to get to incitement or some of us, um, you know, wonder if maybe that's not the right standard for a president, you know, uh, uh, for example, since it has to be um, imminent lawless action and has to be clear that what you're recommending is let's burn down the mayor's office, not let's go um, and angrily peacefully protest. Um, and imminence that it's just right about to happen, and some of that analysis is is hurt by the fact that the um, the protesters had to you know uh, walk a mile. Like the, the White House, I live in D.C. I'm actually this is all right over there. The, the White House and the Capitol aren't that close to each other, so so I don't think that what uh, Trump did is Brandenburg incitement. However. The stronger argument is whether or not it's aiding and abetting, whether or not it's actually conspiracy to uh, commit a crime. And I think that that's actually going to be the tougher issue before the Supreme Court. I run a nonpartisan shop. I have my own and I'm open about the fact I'm a Democrat. Um, yeah. I have my own opinion about whether or not it can actually reach that uh, standard. But it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what the Supreme Court has to say. But anyone says that, that part of the, the analysis is easy is not being truthful. Like that, that that's a that's a more serious um, allegation. When it comes to what's happening, what's happened since October 7th, we have seen an uptick in discriminatory harassment on college campuses against Jewish students. We have seen an uptick in threats against Jewish students, and we have seen an uptick in um, incitement. Again, it's such a hard standard to meet that, uh, you know, I'm not sure I've seen exactly incitement, but, you know, we've seen someone rightfully arrested for issuing yeah. death threats against Jewish students and, and by, by all and absolutely by all means punish that person. We've also seen an uptick in pro-Palestinian students shutting down um, uh, like disrupting dorms, disrupting study hours, disrupting classes, um, and all of that can be punished and should be punished, really. We are, however, seeing an uptick in the targeting of protected speech by pro-Palestinian uh, students, and FIRE defends them. Um, a lot of the discussion has been around two things, um, shouting intifada, or the chant from the river to the sea, the some whatever, the Palestinians shall be free. Um, and the question is, since those are understandably um, interpreted by Jewish students as calls for genocide, particularly from the river to the sea, is that uh, uh, is, is that unprotected incitement? And the answer is, again, because of the Brandenburg standard, no. Um, and going back to the bedrock principle, because it can't just be because it's offensive, the answer is no. But you also have to remember what people mean when they're saying it. Yes, I get it. I completely, you know, I'm extremely sympathetic to Jewish students who hear that. And like, that sounds like they're saying, kill me. And yes. that's like they're saying, wipe my people off the map. But when uh, the Wall Street Journal actually started quizzing some of these students who, who chanted from the river to the sea and showed them maps of here's the river, here's the sea, here's Israel. They didn't know that that right. meant that's gone. And the fact that they actually, in many cases, probably thought what they were saying was resist justice for oppressed people um, does matter uh, in, in the analysis. If they actually thought they were saying, you know, I'm going to kill you, then that then you start getting the territory of true threats. Um, but it, in this case, are intifada uh, by themselves or is saying from the river to the sea by itself protected speech? Yes. However... Can any of those things be part of a pattern of discriminatory harassment? Yes. 
Can they be part of incitement? Can they be part of true threats? All of the above, they, they can be, but it can't just be the statement undirected by itself. Right, right. That's uh, it's it's an interesting distinction in a in a time and a culture that uh, has a, a shallow capacity for nuance. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so so people feel like they don't have time for it, and I understand that. Like I, I'm pretty nervous about this upcoming political year, you know. Yeah. And, and I get people's people feeling like the time for nuance is over, um, but we still need it. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I was I, so reading canceling of the American Mind, the one that came out almost at the same time. I think about a week after October seventh. I was, yep. I it could have been all written after October seventh with how prescient uh, some of the analysis, a lot of the analysis was. But that's interesting. So my own position would be that I think I would defend the right of someone whose views I found deplorable, for lack of a better word. Uh, mm. highly objectionable. Um, but there's a line somewhere between we, there was a, there was a, a gathering uh, the Wednesday after October 7th of Jewish people and supporters and friends at uh, the town, uh, the, the city hall, uh, just to gather and mourn, frankly, uh, some yeah. of us, uh, a lot of us have family in Israel. And at that point didn't know yeah. if our cousins were dead or alive. Um, but there was, uh, there were several trucks that were circling in the parking lot um, and river to the sea that was being chanted. Um, I, where it became ominous is uh, when people came out of their trucks with baseball bats. <laughs> you oh know? God. Yeah. Um, and and no, not just not waving good. flags, but, you know, um, uh, you, intimating that they were going to use their, their flagpoles as, as weapons. Um, so I, 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 again, I think that there's a line somewhere. I'm not exa exactly sure where it is, but when there's this imminent threat of violence, um, yeah. that, uh, that seems to be less, um, less, less under the, under the umbrella of protected speech. Yeah. And under those circumstances, the standard requirement would be the police to make sure that, you know, uh, if it looks like something bad's about to go down, that's when they have the power to, you know, separate people, for example. Um, now what they're not supposed to do like um so th th there's something called the heckler's veto which is very apl uh, applicable on this and even though the heckler's veto has a colloquial meaning which is basically that you don't give in to the people you know throwing rocks at you and the in the law the heckler's veto would be a bunch of angry pro-palestinian protesters show up with baseball bats um and the uh, police then tell the the, the people uh, they, they they tell the Jewish people to go because they can't uh, because you you made these people angry oh. like that that's the definition of heckler's veto in the law and it's not supposed to be allowed that that essentially it's like nope sorry um, we can't let you intimidate you know the speech um, with the intimation of threats from from going on. Yeah. So let me zoom out for a second and, and speak more uh, theoretically. I've heard you describe your own views and draw a distinction between the marketplace of ideas, uh, which a, yep. lot, a, a lot of folks advocate for versus um, I, I don't know how you would put it, but I think uh, the, the last interview I heard you say just generally knowing what people think and why. Uh, yep. So uh, I don't know if you have a, a name for that. That's going to be I the do. title of your next book. But uh, so marketplace <laughs> of ideas versus knowing what people think and why. Describe the difference and why you advocate for the latter. Yeah. So um, I call uh, my theory on freedom of speech is, is I, I call either the pure informational theory of freedom of speech or when I'm being sort of more literary, the lab and the looking glass theory. 
And how do I distinguish that from the marketplace of ideas? Marketplace of ideas um, is a argument that Oliver Wendell Holmes came up with that essentially the idea is that free speech should be protected because we're in a battle for the supremacy of ideas, like what, what idea is going to win out in the, in the competition for ideas. And, you know, uh, Holmes was a Darwinian, so like that, that colored a lot of his thinking about things. And marketplace of ideas is not a bad uh, image for higher ed, for example, like where, where literally it's supposed to be, um, at least in theory, in scholarship, unfortunately, it doesn't work at all like this, um, that uh, good ideas will win out um, as more evidence um, adds up and people become persuaded that maybe their pet theories were not true. That's what it's supposed to be like, but campuses are more dysfunctional than that. Um, so I think it's funny that marketplace of ideas is the least popular in the place where it's most applicable, which is which is higher higher ed. Yeah, but at the same time, that that doesn't get to the full value of freedom of speech because freedom of speech, like a lot of what people talk about, frankly, it's not just about trying to defeat someone in a battle of ideas. That's a tiny portion of what you say in a day. That's a tiny portion of what we use our speech to mean. A lot of what we talk about is our preferences toward things, our opinions towards things, not trying to convince anybody even um, about, you know, banal observations about the world in some cases that actually are more revealing about who we are than what the world looks like. So this is what I mean by the pure informational theory of freedom of speech, that if the goal of human knowledge, uh, the goal of the project of human knowledge, the goal of the humanist project going back centuries is to simply know the world as it is. And it actually turns out that that process is a lot harder than our intuition tells us it is, that our intuitions are wrong, that our folk wisdom is wrong, that when you put a lot of these things to a test, they're not really true. Um, that if the goal is to even for a minute understand what the world actually looks like, there's a really essential part of this that is missing in, in a regime of censorship, what people really think and why. Um, and you do not and you cannot understand the world in which you live in, in which everybody's too scared to say what they really think. So I think that um, one of the great values of freedom of speech is letting people know what they really think and why. And, you know, um, Harvey Silverglade, my mentor, put it very simply, is I want to know who the Nazis are in the room. <laughs> I want to know, <laughs> know who not to turn my back on. Right, um, right. And, but, he, but he's absolutely right. And, and it emphasizes one of the things. It's like you're not safer for knowing less about the world in which you live in. You're not safer because you don't realize, you know, how uh, how how popular what, what we all might consider to be bad ideas actually are. And there's another part to this, which is group polarization, which is, and this is something we talk about in the book, that essentially the way you get group polarization to really um, kick into high gear is you get people to talk to people they already agree with in large numbers. Um, and that actually very predictably, and there's lots of research on this, tends to make pe people more radical in the position of the group. Now, a less pernicious manifestation of this is if you go to like a, you know, if you go to a rally for a cause you believe in, you come back much more convinced, much more um, uh, adamant on your side. Or for that matter, you go to a conference of, of like-minded people and you tend to become much more confident in the position of the group, much more radicalized in the position of the group. Censorship does exactly the same thing. And particularly when it's a legal regime, it convinces people, or at least it, it incentivizes people only talking to people they, they already agree with. Um, because censorship doesn't change anyone's opinion. 
So what that means is if the, the Nazis are only going to talk to other Nazis. And, 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 I, and I think that this is something that, that France should have put together before they actually passed some of these anti-Semitism laws in France you know, in the 90s, is that what's that going to do? That's going to basically tell all the anti-Semites to only talk to other anti-Semites. They're not going to talk to people they're not sure about because that's going to, you know, maybe they'll get reported to the law. But if they'll talk to other people they know are simpatico on that. And that very predictably will make them more radicalized in the direction of the group. Meanwhile, a de-radicalizing power is talking to someone who disagrees with you that you respect. Um, and so freedom of speech is can actually be a great de-radicalizing power if we respect it, not just the, the legal norms, but the culture of free speech, which includes things like hear people out, everyone's entitled to their opinion, not even if that other group's opinion is troubling, but especially if the other group's opinion is troubling. You know, you know, what's interesting is that as I hear you talk, as I've engaged with your work, there are so many different disciplines and domains that have to intersect that have to have dialogue with each other from psychology to sociology to history yeah. to law um you know and and a lot of these if, if for years and years just this morning i went back to the original article that spurred the book with with height with jonathan height um and i pulled this quote by almost any definition critical thinking requires grounding one's belief beliefs in evidence rather than emotion or desire and learning how to search for and evaluate evidence that might contradict one's initial hypothesis. You could be talking to an evolutionary biologist, or you could yep. be talking to uh, a psychologist. You could be talking to, you know, there's any number. It's uh, it's interesting that a lot of these are worth continuing. The problems that have metastasized, so they, they need to be, uh, we need to continue to talk about it. Um, but at the same time, all of these disciplines are um, centered in higher ed, and a lot of the problems are centered in, in higher education. So I was curious, uh, uh, one more quote, and then I, I want to ask uh, you to maybe go into some of the prescriptions, if you will, uh, toward yeah. the end of canceling of the American mind. By the way, that last quote was from the original article in The Atlantic from 2015 that led to the book. Uh, the coddling of the American mind that came out in 2018. Um, this comes from the end of the canceling of the American mind. Given that higher education is the wellspring of the perfect rhetorical fortress, an engine for, for conformity and ground zero for cancel culture, the case for reform could not be stronger. And small changes around the edges aren't going to cut it. We need big changes. So what might be some of those big changes? Yeah, um, I mean, right now, I think that, um, well, first of all, FIRE, uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, my organization, we just came out with 10 common sense reforms that could help uh, improve the atmosphere for free speech on campus, um, but also for the discovery of truth. Um, and it includes things like remembering that you're the point of higher ed, uh, the point of certainly research universities is the discovery of truth. Um, and that the reason why, as, as John Haidt points out, that you can't have both two, uh, you can have more than one telos. Telos means kind of the purpose of something. Um, you can either you can have a social justice university, but then you can't actually really have a truly open-minded truth university. Now, I immediately understood what he meant, but I've been surprised sometimes to hear younger people be like, well, what does that mean? It can't be both truth and social, social justice. It's like, no, because what it means to be pro-social justice is to know where you're supposed to end up. It's, mm. it's supposed to know what assumptions are true, what the search for truth 
means is actually constantly looking at those assumptions and going, are these even correct? Um, what's the evidence against them? Could I be wrong about the thing I hold dearest in my heart? What is social justice? All these kind of things. Like, so search for truth, you know, is something that that universities haven't been focusing on enough, and they need they need to get back to. Um, so we have a whole list of uh, of ideas and reforms. I do actually think we'd be living in a much healthier country if we weren't so disproportionately reliant on elite colleges, particularly the ones in the spotlights right now. Um, you know, Harvard, Penn, uh, Yale, for that matter, are schools that have terrible track records when yeah. it comes to freedom of speech. Um, and that scares me that people educated them uh, at the, these schools are, are are treated as much more deserving of you know the big jobs and the and the fancy political appointments and they frankly i think they should be so something that comes out of the current kerfuffle around elite higher ed is that we rely less on the fancies in order to establish and forget the marxist expression but who are ruling classes i think that would actually be a healthy step in the right direction but as far as something that i think would really help is smaller cheaper more rigorous experiments of other ways that people can show that they're well-read, that they're smart, that they're hardworking, um, and we need a lot of them. Um, you know, so so someone you know like me who was going to the um, to the library on weekends wouldn't uh, and thought the idea of going into debt to go to college just sounded suicidal, um, and wouldn't have gone unless I was a scholarship student. Um, the that we need other ways for people to show um how, how smart hardworking they are other than these models that they currently claim and this is going back to more elite education um that they cost seventy thousand dollars a year and that seventy thousand dollars cover less than half the cost of educating a single student for a single year um and what does that money pay for a bigger bureaucratization uh, a, a bigger administrative class which is one of the reasons why free speech and due process has been in, in such trouble on campus so I do actually think that a lot of the solutions are productively looking at regulations, looking at regulatory barriers to having smaller solutions. I think that we massively have to de-bureaucratize universities. Um, a lot of those bureaucrats are actual threats to freedom of speech and academic freedom. They're the ones who enforce the speech codes and actually, in some cases, actually, you know, will get together the disruption of the speeches, will actually, you know, uh, will actually, in some cases, be the ones who are encouraging students to sign petitions in order to get professors fired. So we have to be doing some big thinking and we ha and we can't leave leave the status quo like it, like it currently is. And honestly, even if it was just cost, e even if it was just cost and bureaucratization, the the path we are on is not sustainable like you can't keep going up and up and up like like this um so i'm hopeful that unlike the last time we had a big threat to free speech on campus which is you know which i call in the book the first great age for political correctness where once there were a couple of lawsuits and people seemed to fall out of love with enlightened censorship that we all kind of took our eyes off of higher education um and things just got worse now we have to actually be like there's got to be a way to do this better for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think things are moved? So your, your own uh, your own law school, Stanford Law, had a very high profile incident where 
I, I forgot the names, but uh, it was a conservative, a, a, a Trump appointed judge was invited Kyle to speak Duncan. by FedSoc. Yeah, um, there was another case where, and again, forgive me for forgetting the names, um, a, a an attorney who argued some cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, she represents uh, freedom of religion cases. Uh, I think that one was at Yale. And in both yeah. cases, um, it was basically shut down by uh, a screaming mob who just really disrupted um, the the entire event. So how, if you were, you know, if you were king of the world or king of Stanford law, king of, like, and you could wave a magic wand and say, this could have gone better and here's how, how would incidents like that have gone better? Um, I think that you needed to start that process long before that incident took place in the first place. And it has to start on day one by explaining the philosophy of freedom of speech, the the scholarly mindset, which is one where you're supposed to be radically open-minded and take very seriously the likelihood, actually the certainty that you are wrong about mm. any number of things. A lot of your assumptions simply are wrong. And also, they should have cultivated the habit of listening, not just debating, actually listening. And that's one of the reasons why, even though I'm a, uh, I'm a lawyer, and I, I think debate can be extremely valuable and extremely helpful, some of the projects where it's literally like have someone come in from a very different walk of life than you're familiar with and explain what it's like to be them, uh, they, they give me hope. There's actually a project um, that, that I, I read about in which uh, students from Kentucky went to the Bronx and met students from the Bronx and uh, high school students. And by the end of the day, the goal yeah. was to be able to describe yourself um, as the other person. They, basically, they'd be paired off in, in, in groups, one from the Bronx, one, one from Kentucky. And by the end of the day, you were supposed to be able to talk about yourself as if you were the other person. These empathy building programs, I think, really get at a lot of the old sayings that we all believed in when I was a kid that we think are good representations of free speech culture. Yeah. Old sayings like, to each their own everyone's entitled to their opinion, it's a free country, walk a mile in a man's shoes, all of these ideas that basically were just little sayings that we all took for granted as being cliches, but also true, that remind people, you know, check yourself, like you're wrong about stuff. Your your certainty is not correct. And it's not your, uh, you don't, it's not your right to demand that other people think things that match what you think. Yeah. So, I had an experience uh, part part in part of the book, the, the latest book you you talked about, you dealt with um, Dave Chappelle's, I think it was 2022 or 2021, The Closer, and how a number of employees at Netflix uh, basically wanted to deplatform Dave Chappelle altogether. They were trying to force the hand of upper management and program the, the folks who were in charge of programming uh, at Netflix. Um, now, full disclosure, I know a lot of those people. I'm, I'm in the entertainment industry. I've had a practice in um, uh, headhunting and and uh, which, by the way, somebody said you can't say headhunting anymore. I'm like, I'm going to say headhunting. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, it's a small scale. Why can't you say headhunting anymore? Because uh, their their explanation was that it was cultural appropriation and uh, painting a negative light of certain indigenous peoples. And I was like, you're reaching, man. You are reaching. The reason yeah. I say headhunting is because it pisses off my competitors. They they want to say yeah. executive search. And I'm like, I say headhunting. You know, anyway, it's headhunting and small scale mergers and acquisitions in the entertainment industry. So oh I know God. a lot of those people at Netflix. Um, so when Chappelle 
uh, when a lot of those folks stood up and you know did a walkout or uh, a zoom out or whatever that day, I uh, I posted something that I thought could have been not just not innocuous necessarily, but like we can all agree like in the freedom of expression, even if we find a lot of his jokes unfunny and even cringeworthy, there's still the freedom of expression. Uh, man, it was like dog pile on the rabbit. I got my ass kicked. Um, oh, man. But uh, so my question here is, uh, what advice would you give? Not that that was like the, the most egregious example of canceling or an attempt to cancel. What advice do you have for someone who is the target of a, of a cancel culture mob? Um, what, oh, when you're already a target. Yeah. I, I, I think a lot about trying to, you know, raise kids who aren't cancelers, you know, like I actually think like we should be focusing more on not being cancelers ourselves. Um, because a lot of times it's too late by the time someone's already being, uh, already being targeted. Um, I definitely think that for the most part, you can't, um, uh, be, be canceled outside of your own tribe. You know, because we point out cases where um, university uh, professors are targeted from the right and, and actually do get in trouble. And that's about one third of the punishments we see. But the reason why that isn't actually an exception to you can only be canceled by your own side is that the people ultimately doing the firing for the most part are also, you know, on the on the left as well. Because the super majority of administrators tend to be left leaning and, and the and the um uh the professors that are uh, that are targeting uh, that are targeted by the right are also left-leaning themselves so generally you can only be canceled by your own side and that's one of the reasons why having no side um or uh can, can be helpful and i think a lot of us feel like we you know we're orphans and and uh, we seek the, the the comfort of other orphans but once you're actually facing you know a um a cancel culture mob um if you're a boss uh, you should say um we don't respond to um immediate uh, we don't respond immediately to calls from social media to fire somebody we have a process in place it takes several weeks in order to investigate it ourselves and includes a cooling off period where we tr try to find some facts but we do not respond right away to demands that we fire people um, now this is important and can work in 90 percent of cases because um a lot of the cancel culture mobs burn out they get they they create the impression that there are five thousand people you know demanding that you fire your it person whether there actually might be five um and you, amazingly corporations would would do whatever they said you know for, for a long time and if you have some process in place the uh the the push to get them fired will, will oftentimes uh desist when it comes to um, uh, one thing you probably shouldn't do, uh, and this kind of breaks my heart to have to say this, because I, I, I do generally think that you should follow your conscience on apologies, but from a tactical standpoint, don't apologize. Like if someone's trying to get you canceled, they don't give a damn about your apology. Actually, they will take your apology as essentially confessing you're a witch and just confirming everything that they believe. The people who have done the best in these circumstances, you know, they don't apologize. They, they stand by what they said um, and they try to immediately, you know, find some people who will be on their side. Uh, yeah. So when they came first, tried to cancel Steve Pinker in the summer of 2020 after getting so many uh, people fired, you know, in that year. And 2020 was a huge year for cancel culture. 
Um, it didn't work with Steve Pinker, partially because he didn't apologize for anything. Um, and he had an existing base of fans across the political spectrum who took him uh, who took him seriously. So 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 that one fizzled. Yeah, no, there there was another one uh, not too long ago in the entertainment industry. Kevin Hart uh, was uh, was had to step down from being a host. I forgot which show it was. Might have been the Oscars even. Uh, but he uh, he was originally scheduled to be the host of one of the big awards shows. And something was dug up in that that he posted a dozen years ago. Um, and then, you know, his his initial response was, well, you know, I we saw this and I I dealt with it at the time. I don't feel the same way anymore. I'm not going to deal with it again. We're not going to do this again. Um, and because that was his stance, he ultimately wasn't able to host that uh, that awards show. But I respect his his position where, no, 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 you're digging something up. That was, you know, I talked about this. We rehashed this over and over and over again. And uh, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm not going to apologize for it again. Um, you know, it, it is what it is. Leave it alone. Let it lie. Um, yep. So on the one hand, he wasn't able to continue being the host because the organization had to make an organizational decision of, yeah. you know, on their own, but Kevin Hart's doing fine, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, well, in, the, in the book, we, we talk about a lot of uh, industries hurt by cancel culture. And the one that um, we left the most uh, confident in the one that we felt like was doing the best um, was the chapter on comedy where, where essentially, you know, comedy uh, has a natural resistance to, to, to um, ideological capture. Uh, you know, I think there are definitely some stories of it, uh, of um, uh, embarrassing stories of political correctness in comedy or cancel culture in comedy. But overall, as far as the sector that I think is the most likely to recover from all this stuff, it, it, it's definitely comedy. Yeah, yeah. So I want to start to wrap up and I want to ask you what we call the TPNR question. Talk politics yeah. and religion without killing each other. What do you think? And we've been talking a lot about answers to these questions, but I want I want to hit it head on. What do you think each of us can do to be better able to share space with, have better conversations with, and even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Uh, first thing is to want to, um, which I think too, too, too few people actually even want um, yeah. at, at this point, particularly influential people. Um, I think those numbers are improving, you know, somewhat. And I think uh, groups like Braver Angels kind of give me hope. Um, Monica Guzman's in a great book. Um, I forget what the name of it is, but about, I never you know, thought your, of it that way, which echoes a lot of your your sentiments. Yeah. Or your yeah, your no. your findings. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of great advice in there. I definitely would recommend that. I think it was one of my book of the month, and I'll probably re-up it at, um, at some point. So I think there's a, a ton of great ad advice in there. There's something, that there was some recommendation that, you know, don't just jump into, um, you know, just don't start watching Fox News or MSNBC to, to, um, to, to check yourself. That's something that will just tend to make people more alienated and more angry. <laughs> um, but there are usually publications that actually are trying to, um uh talk to you know take a more center uh standpoint and and uh explain things to hostile audiences so that that might be a good a good starting technique and definitely you know as far as like ways to mentally prepare yourself one thing that i really worry about for this generation is the pro product problem of presentism which is essentially only thinking of the last say five years as the sum total of, of the knowledge you need to know 
And uh, I find that reading older books can make you much more open to the idea that there are people who can see the world very, very different from you and they're not bad people. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what the right word for it is, but there's a version of presentism. It was the lens through which many people applied to what happened, uh, what's happening in Israel right now between Israel and Palestine. Um, Yeah. And it's it's applying the lens of uh, of oppressed versus oppressor, of of those who come to dom- uh, colonialism, uh, uh, applying the 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 lens of apartheid to what's happening there, and it doesn't comport with the history of what's happened in that part of the world, either in recent history or over the last hundred years, let alone the last several thousand years. Uh, so last question, how, uh, do you have any questions for me? (laughs) (laughs) I usually start with how dare you? (laughs) In that case, I will just let folks know that you can find Greg or fire his great organization online. Greg can be found on Substack at greglukyanov.substack.com. Uh, the name of the Substack is Eternal Ra- Eternally Radical Idea. Eternally Radical Idea. Greg Lukyanov.substack.com. Or you could find him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Greg Lukyanov, G L U K I A N O F F. I'll definitely include this in the show notes or threads at G Lukyanov. And uh, the website for FIRE, a great organization, is thefire.org. It's www.thefire.org. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. We are easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S is in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.